David McCullough tells us what a lifetime spent researching American history at home and overseas has shown him about the USA. I always come back reassured that we are a good country. We are a good people. And great things are being accomplished. It isn't all bad news. Gloria Steinem's travels to a newly independent India guided her political goals for America, too. The way you conducted yourself determined your ends. The ends didn't justify the means. The means dictated the ends. It took me a while to realize that this was true pretty much everywhere, and certainly in in this country, too. And travel writer Dave Seminara tells us what he found when he took his whole family to Colombia on vacation. This is almost one of the most perfect town squares you'll find anywhere in Latin America. How do you see the world? Let's explore it together in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Gloria Steinem says she's lived out of a suitcase for years. Her autobiography has been called A Travel Diary for the Women's Movement and has now been adapted into a major motion picture. Coming up, she tells us how traveling with her father from a young age gave her the confidence to tackle the status quo. And later in the hour, we'll revisit the time historian David McCullough came to our studio to tell us what he gets out of traveling to the places where history was made. He shares where he's gone to research his bestsellers on American history. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with travel writer Dave Seminara. He took his whole family to Medellin, Colombia, which used to have a reputation as the headquarters for a dangerous drug cartel. Our interview was recorded just before the global lockdowns kicked in. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Rick. So you went to Medellin. I mean, the image of Medellin is, like, scary. A generation ago, it was one of the most dangerous cities on the planet. That's right, but but it certainly isn't any longer. I mean, these days, the, the murder rate in Medellin is lower than New Orleans, St. Louis, Chicago, and I think several other U.S. cities as well. It's an amazing turnaround, and uh, tourism is a, a booming part of the economy. I was just there. My son loves it so much, he bought a condo there, and I was there for New Year's uh, this last year with him, and we were standing on his balcony, and, and everybody was blowing up fireworks. And uh, my son had a Colombian friend there with him, and, and we were talking about it. And when the Colombians see those fireworks, they remember in the days of Pablo Escobar, that's what they would explode when they made a deal in the United States with the, uh, with the drug trade. They're not making deals with the drug trade anymore with the uh, Pablo Escobar uh, outfit. That's just celebrating. So they've gone from supplying America's cocaine habit to actually building a city on law-abiding entrepreneurs. That's true. They, uh, Colombia still does produce 80% of the world's cocaine, I mean, to be frank. However, look, I went there with my 10- and 12-year-old sons and my wife, and I would never take them to a place that I thought was too dangerous, so I really consulted with a lot of different people uh, before going there. However, my parents and several other people said, Colombia, you're taking your sons to Colombia. Are you nuts? But, you know, I did my research, and I talked to enough people who had had great experiences there that I, I've, you know, I felt comfortable doing it. And we spent two weeks traveling all around the country, and I felt very safe the whole time. Tell us about the uh, Pablo Escobar tour. Well, it was interesting. You know, my wife said, Pablo Escobar tour, are you sure that that's appropriate for our sons who are, you know, 10 and 12 years old? So I I called one of the tour companies that had good reviews on TripAdvisor, and he said, oh, yes, our tour is good for children age six and up. (laughs) I said, really? Okay. Hmm. Well, let's do it. We thought um, maybe we can teach them, okay, he's a bad guy. 
you know, here's the evils of drugs and uh, teach them a little bit about why the drug violence in Colombia. And I thought maybe they'd, a lot of it might go over their head, but I thought, well, they'll learn something. Let's do it. But you go through a, you go through a neighborhood, Comuna 13, which is now trendy and it's filled with street art and it's just a, a festival of good living. Not good living, it's, it's still a poor area, but a festival of happiness, yeah. Comuna 13 is sort of an interesting area. I've, I've found it to be one of the more disappointing stops, to be honest with you, on the tour. I mean, it doesn't really have much to do with Pablo Escobar, although it was a neighborhood that was racked by gang violence. And then in 2011, the government installed a series of escalators there. The idea was allowing people to be able to move safely through the community to get from their hilltop neighborhoods down to where jobs and transportation and things of that are. But when I was there in July, I don't know about the experience. Maybe if you traveled at a different time of year, you might have a more authentic experience. But it was absolutely full of tourists, which really shocked me because here is sort of an impoverished neighborhood that has all credit to them. I think it's wonderful. They found a way to turn the violence of the neighborhood into a marketable commodity. But it was absolutely crawling with tourists. And I sort of felt like, wow, I I really don't like going to places that are too full of tourists. So for, for me, it fell a little bit flat, to be quite honest. But maybe if I visited another time of year, I would have I would have liked it more. No, I don't think so. I I, I mean, I was there in, in the winter, but to me, it was a former um, violence-ridden, gang-ridden community that now is a kind of a tourist trap, and it just felt like an amusement pier in uh, San Francisco, almost, or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I agree. What was really fun was the street art. I mean, the the street art was like it's like going through an, an art gallery. And it's all this edgy, colorful, tropical kind of street art. And you've got it all laced together by escalators. And I can imagine before those escalators came, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you would have uh, desperately poor people and uh, you'd have the intimidation of the gangs and all of that and the, and the high murder rate. And today there's, there's not a hint of that. And the escalators let people connect. And I think, you know, the way Colombia has invested in its infrastructure has given poor barrios the confidence and, and the feeling that this is progress and change is possible. And, and one thing great about going to Medellin is you ride these cable cars because the, the city is in a very mountainous area and the poorest communities are pushed way up the mountainsides. But these cable cars, they're, they're just like um, cable cars at a ski resort. They connect the people in the poor neighborhoods with the good jobs and the good shopping and the good entertainment down on the valley floor. And riding these cable cars was just a kind of a celebration of community to me. What was your experience on those cable cars? Well, I love the cable cars, just like you. You know, I took the cable cars up to the Park Arve, which is, it's a long ride. This is one interesting thing is that you take two different sets of cable cars. You can take one set of cable cars, which sort of goes through some of the rough hillside neighborhoods. And that one is actually fairly, you know, quite cheap to go through. And actually, on, when you're on that first cable car, you're actually getting ordinary people who live in those uh, humble right. neighborhoods coming on and off of your gondola. But then to go on the second gondola, which takes you all the way up the mountain, up to the Park RV, which is just fantastic, and I do recommend that. That's significantly more expensive. So that that second cable, you know, gondola is more for tourists, and it's it would be too expensive for people who live in the humble yeah. neighborhoods. But as a traveler, it's worth it's worth it to do both. Well, at the lower part where it's the um, transportation for the community, you, you get a sense of the community, and you get to talk to people. It's kind of cool because yep. you're floating above all of these barrios, and then after the top city stop, you sort of plateau and you go across this amazing lush forest in a giant national park. And there, the only people still on the cable cars are tourists who can afford that. But you get to the terminal point way in the middle of the park, and I think the locals will come in there by bus, which would be much cheaper because it is uh, a wonderful jumping off point for for hikes in this nature reserve. 
Yeah, so the neighborhood that uh, that Pablo built, I mean, now it's called Barrio Pablo Escobar, Pablo Escobar's neighborhood, but it was originally called Medellin Sin Turjurios, Medellin without shantytowns. And the idea was he was really trying to improve his image in the country, and he built about 366 sort of humble homes in this neighborhood for people who were down on their luck, or many of them were homeless and actually living in a garbage dump area in, in that region. And there, you talk about street art. There's, so there's a number of uh, murals celebrating Pablo Escobar. I mean, I would say that most Colombians despise Pablo Escobar and everything he stood for. Mm-hmm. However, in this little neighborhood, and I met some of them, there are people who still revere him. It's quite a small minority of Colombians, I would say. But you see murals, several murals, right in this barrio Pablo Escobar, which depicting El Patron, the hero, the Robin Hood that you're talking about. And I, and I met those. some of those people. And there's some young hustlers there who are very interesting entrepreneurs. One of them has created what you'll find in, right in the middle of this neighborhood is a Pablo Escobar Memories Museum. Now, there was another Pablo Escobar Museum uh, that was run by Pablo's brother, which was actually shut down. And it wasn't in this neighborhood, but the government closed that one down. This one is sort of a, a homemade sort of museum that some young hustlers in the neighborhood have made. And they also sell visits to the to some of the homes where you can tour the homes. And it's kind of, it's bizarre, but yeah. Travel writer Dave Seminar is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring how Medellin, Colombia, the city of eternal spring, has become an eco-friendly and entrepreneurial travel destination that's ideal for families. Dave includes dispatches from the margins of the Americas in his book, Breakfast with Polygamists. His website is daveseminara.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Kristen's calling from Camarillo in California. Kristen, thanks for your call. Hi. My husband and I visited Medellin in um, 2011 as a part of a broader trip to South America. And I just want to encourage as many people to travel to Colombia and Medellin as possible because we nearly skipped Medellin until we met um, a local from Medellin in the nearby town of Guatape. And she was horrified that we would miss out on our hometown. Of course, you know, we've heard all the horror stories. It was the most dangerous city in the world. So we were nervous, but we went and took the usual big city precautions, and we had an excellent time. We actually encountered many Colombians who seemed frustrated with their status as a dangerous city or the narco-tourism. So many cab drivers or shopkeepers would say, please, are you having fun? Please tell your friends, come visit Colombia. We are safe. And I have been, and I rave about Colombia to this day. You know, I had the same um, fear I had to overcome, and, and as I mentioned, my son decided to live there. He invites his friends down there all the time with sort of an evangelical fervor to let them know that Colombia is a great place to travel in, and as Dave's been explaining to us, the, the whole es- Pablo Escobar thing is, is now kind of an old news part of tourism. Yes, I would agree with that. And I, I, she also told us stories of growing up in Medellin under, when he was, you know, under, I guess, in charge of that area, and they were not good stories. So a lot of Colombians, some do have positive memories of Pablo Escobar and what he's done for some of the communities. But there was also a lot of people that we spoke with that did yeah. not have that positive association. Uh, Kristen, I, I think you're absolutely right. If people are dreaming of going to Colombia, they should remember that uh, they should not let the old image as a city that was fraught with drug violence to get in the way of uh, making their travel dreams come true. Thanks for your call, Kristen. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dave Seminara, and his book is Breakfast with Polygamists. You wouldn't guess from the title, but it's a collection of fascinating essays from traveling all across the Americas, and one of the chapters features Medellin, the city in Colombia. 
Dave, what's a final little travel tip you'd give us for those of us who are dreaming of going to this part of Colombia? Colombia is an amazing country, but don't just go to the big cities. Two of my favorite small towns are Villa de Leva, which is near Bogota. And then if you're going to Medellin, a great jumping off point to that is a town called Jardín, which means garden in Spanish. Jardín is about two and a half to three hours south of Medellin, so it's a good side trip from there. The roads are absolutely awful. They're catastrophic, but you're going through the the Colombia that you saw in Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, the sort of Colombia, the jungles that you dream about. And the town itself is spectacular. What I want to close with is this is the, almost one of the most perfect town squares you'll find anywhere in Latin America. Big, beautiful cathedral in the middle of the square, bands playing outside. The entire square is filled with cafes and restaurants, and the entire town comes out every evening after dinner to socialize and to sit. The, ch- the children are playing soccer in the square. Jardin is the town, right? Jardin, it's pronounced. Jardin. Okay, Jardin. Compliment your trip to Medellin with a side trip to Jardin, J-A-R-D-I-N. Dave Seminar, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk again when you have more adventures from the margins of the Americas to report on. Thanks, Rick. Happy travels. You too. El sabor de tu boca fresca quiero llevar en la memoria. El calor que le da la arena comparo solo con la gloria. We have more with Dave Seminara about what they call narcotourism in Medellin. You can hear it from our website with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Coming up, two great American writers, feminist Gloria Steinem and historian David McCullough, tell us how important their travels have been in shaping their worldview and their work. We'll start with Gloria Steinem, next on Travel with Rick Steves. During this 15th anniversary year of Travel with Rick Steves, we're revisiting some of our favorite guest interviews. In her autobiography, My Life on the Road, Gloria Steinem explains how being a frequent traveler from a young age cultivated a more open way of viewing the world and one another, and how it gave her the confidence to confront inequities in our society. Thank you for inviting me to be part of what is the first travel show I've been on. And, you know, how did that happen? What could be more appropriate? Well, it's great. In reading your book, it is clear you are an enthusiast, not just about travel, but about travel as a way to broaden our perspective and and help us engage in in the world. And you write about uh, the definition of adventurer and adventurous. Tell us about that. Adventurer, I think we know as uh, some the daring, attractive occupation, exploring. Adventurous, if you look in the dictionary, you will find it's someone who takes advantage of other people for money and position. Mm. So even (laughs) in the words, there is a problem. So the road really is masculine turf unless people speak up and and open it up to the other half of the world, isn't it? Yes, it, it has been, which is ironic because from DNA studies, we understand that women have been more likely to travel than men, but mainly because of cultures that were patrilocal, so women traveled to marry into other cultures. Otherwise, the road is viewed as too dangerous for women often, and there are still places in the world, especially in the Middle East, where women are not allowed to leave their own homes, much less their countries, without male permission or the company of a male. So it it has been male turf, I think in a literary sense, too. It's been male turf in the kind of Jack Kerouac mystique. It must have been so interesting for you to, to look back on 
over five decades of, of hard work and, and lots of travel. You, you wrote that for the first decades, your longest stretch at home was eight days. And Well, my longest consecutive <laughs> stretch at home was eight days, and that was a shock even to me. <laughs> you wrote that the road is the place you feel most at home. How can that be? Well, I, I had not planned to start this book with a chapter about my father, but once I sat down to write it, it was the first thing I found coming up because as a child, I did grow up until the age of 10 or so, most of the time in a house trailer. Hmm. My father was a gypsy in his spirit. He had a little summer resort in southern Michigan. But when it got cold, he immediately put us all, you know, my sister, my mother, the dog, and me into a house trailer, and we started to wend our way, working our way by selling antiques and jewelry and so on along the way to Florida or California in warm weather. So that meant that I actually lived most of the time in my early childhood in a house trailer. I understand from your book that, you know, he'd leave home without enough money to get back home and he would just say, well, let's see what'll happen. Mm, Yes. (laughs) He always used to say, if I don't know what will happen tomorrow, it could be wonderful. So he affirmatively didn't want to know what was going to happen. Oh, and that must have had an impact on it, because as a, a young woman of 22, you head out for India. And I found it interesting, Gloria, that you dedicated the book to a British doctor who, at considerable risk to himself, helped you out when you were on the road to India as a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, you know, I was partly escaping getting married. I had been engaged when I was a senior in college. And so when I was working as a waitress in London, waiting for a visa to get to India... I realized that I was pregnant, and I had all the notions of throwing myself downstairs or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, completely naive mm-hmm. notions. But fortunately, I found his name in, a, in the phone book, actually, in the neighborhood where I was living. And he turned out to be a very wise and kind person who was willing to risk his livelihood by signing uh, a paper for me to go and seek an abortion legally. And then he he took a promise out of you, didn't he? Which I think is very powerful. Yes, he said, as I say in the dedication, knowing only that that I had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. So I say in this dedication, dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you who knew the law was unjust would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life. This book is for you. I'm sure he, he would be, he would endorse what you have done with your life. But it's almost a, that trip must have been a, like a springboard to a life of activism because you were heading for India. How did India impact you? And when you look back on it, how did it make a difference in your work over all these decades? You know, I would, I would not want to say that I knew what I was doing. And even after I was there for a year and loved it and stayed on for another year, I still didn't understand how much it was changing me or how what I was learning there would be relevant. You know, somehow I think if we just proceed <laughs> one step at a time doing what excites us and interests us, it begins to fit together like a puzzle. And, of course, they had just managed the first big peaceful revolution in gaining independence. And Gandhi's philosophy was 
very much key to that and influencing the world. So it just took me a long time to, to realize that what I was learning there about organizing, the change came from the bottom up, that the way you conducted yourself determined your ends. The ends didn't justify the means. The means dictated the ends. It took me a while to realize that this was true pretty much everywhere, and certainly in, in this country, too. So you were there in sort of in the wake of all the exciting um, nonviolence and grassroots change from Gandhi and India, and you learned about talking circles. How did that help you? Talking circles are, it's what our Native Americans base uh, government and self-government on. It's actually what our Constitution is based on, though I didn't know it at the time. But it starts with a group of people a group not so big, but what everyone can speak and everyone can listen, in which consensus and listening to each other is more important than time. Mm -hmm. We probably have been sitting around campfires telling our stories for all the time that human beings have been on Earth, so it may be part of our cellular structure (laughs) that we need this kind of community And we learn by listening to each other's stories. Actually, our brains are still organized on narrative and imagery. If you tell me a fact or a statistic, I will invent a narrative that makes it true. It's part of the problem with our media that they conceive of serious news as being only facts and statistics and soft news as being narrative. So I think it's part of the reason we're obsessed with celebrities, Mm -hmm. because they're kind of the only narrative in town. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1972. Gloria, of all the countries you've traveled in, is there a country that you admire for their respect of women? It's not so much a country as it is a period of time in every country, which is sometimes still visible. That is, the Native American nations in this country, of which there were you know, many hundreds before Europeans showed up, or it's the Quay and the San in Africa, who were are the first relatives of all of us, of all human beings, or the Dalits in India, because their paradigm of society was a circle, not a pyramid, not a hierarchy. So they understood people as being linked rather than ranked, mm-hmm. and having a relationship with nature. Actually, they, their languages didn't have a word for nature because it wasn't separate. So it was just a profoundly deeper, more egalitarian idea of what a culture was. We, we think that patriarchy and hierarchy and monotheism are inevitable because we've experienced them in our childhoods, but they're all quite new. So patriarchy probably works better in a hierarchical society, and if you want to get beyond patriarchy, you need that circular kind of outlook? Yeah, well, I think the uh, hierarchical society begins with patriarchy because the... Right. The first hierarchical impulse seems to have been to control reproduction and therefore to control the bodies of women. Before that, it seems that women knew pretty well how to control their own fertility and decide when and whether to have children. Mm -hmm. It was just a much more circular, egalitarian, consensus-driven form. And if we learned that, I think it would help us because we are now longing for a society in which we don't see ourselves separate from nature and are less likely, therefore, to destroy it, in which we are beginning to realize how sinister and artificial it is to divide ourselves into 
races and to have the cult of gender dividing human beings. You know, I would say the earth is now small enough and endangered enough, so we're kind of longing for mm-hmm. many of these values and practices that were present for most of human history. Could you say if people just stay at home, well, I suppose you could say, and just watch the news and so on, they become more complacent. But when you travel, you get to talk to people and you realize there's similar struggles and, and similar ways to open up to this kind of... Uh... Yes, yes, certainly we, we do when we travel. I'm not sure that when we're at home we get complacent because our media seems to feel that only conflict is news. Right. So we're much less likely to get reports about solutions to problems than we are about problems. And we may get really embittered uh, and despairing Mm -hmm. from, from just listening to the media. We're on the line with author and activist Gloria Steinem right now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we recorded right after her memoir, My Life on the Road, was released. It's now been adapted into a major motion picture called The Glorious. Her website is GloriaSteinem.com. We live in a political world. Love don't have any place. We live in times where men commit crimes and crime don't have a face. And Gloria, in your book, you make it pretty clear that one purpose of the book is to tempt us to explore the United States. You don't need to travel internationally to enjoy the value of travel. Why is that an interest of yours? Well, I, I began to realize that we still had something of a national inferiority complex, or at least some groups in this country do, because whenever I said, you know, I was going to India or I was going to South Africa, people would say, oh, how exciting. Mm-hmm. And if I said I was traveling in this country, they would say, oh, that must be so tiring. <laughs> right. So, you know, this this book, although it starts in India because that was such an education for me, is otherwise about traveling in this country. And I hope that it tempts people to do it. I, I wish that every high school student could spend six months on the road and every political candidate had to spend a couple of years on the road as, as a requirement of running. And really talking and listening, not just giving speeches. It's kind of related to your chapter on why you don't drive. I just love this notion that when you don't drive, as soon as you step out the door, the adventure begins. Yes, you know, I'm so used to traveling the way I travel that I was, I had already written an outline for the book before I realized, wait a minute, I have to explain why I'm writing an on-the-road book when I don't drive. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Then I, I realized the, the virtue of it, which is that if you don't drive, the moment you leave your door, the trip starts. You're in the subway, you're talking to a taxi driver, you're, whatever it is, you are not isolated all by yourself in this uh, tin can of a car. One thing I picked up in your book, Glory, was that the road teaches you how to live in the present. You, you know, for years, my friends would try to persuade me to meditate, and I 100% agree that meditation is beneficial in so many ways. I took two courses in how to meditate, but I just never incorporated it into my life. And finally, I decided that actually travel is my form of meditation, because it does, like meditation, force you to live in 100% in the present. You wrote, it's right up there with life-threatening emergencies and truly mutual sex as a way of being fully alive in the present. Yes, I think so. I, I think so. That you line. know, so what better invitation to travel <laughs> could you have? <laughs> Gloria, when you look back on your lifetime of advocacy, all in all, how's the progress been for women? Well, I think it's 
been much faster in a changing state of mind and a changing consciousness than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. So that now there is a majority support for all of the basic issues of equality, some of which weren't even in polls or even in, in words when we started. Mm. But since we do have the majority, I would have thought that the remedies or the laws, the practices would have changed more. Mm-hmm. What I didn't account for is that we have a very imperfect democracy, to put it mildly, so mm-hmm. the majority will is not only not always what's expressed, and also that the advocates of the old way, of the old hierarchy, are quite fierce, and even though they are outnumbered, quite powerful and often have access to a lot of political contributions. So on the one hand, we're much further forward in consciousness, and the other hand, not nearly as far forward Mm -hmm. in actual change of legislation, how money and salaries are distributed, you know, how our police behave, you know, the kind of structures that there's less change than I would have thought. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Gloria Steinem. Her book is My Life on the Road. And Gloria, could we just finish our our little uh, discussion here about your book with uh, the story that you tell so vividly about the woman with the big purple Harley motorcycle? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, perhaps your listeners know what I did not, which is that there is in South Dakota this massive, massive yearly group of motorcycle riders from around the world huge numbers, you know, literally hundreds of thousands converge. (laughs) And there were a group of us uh, who had come to a Native American powwow, which was celebrating and trying to restore the equal position of women in society. So I couldn't, I I couldn't figure out why there were all these folks in black leather and tattoos and chains and nose rings and so on (laughs) on the plane. But once we got there, we discovered we saw motorcycles around all of the restaurants and so on along the highways. And we discovered that there were, you know, this is this huge, huge global motorcycle rally, which I have to say, even though we were strong, daring women, we thought, kind of worried us because we'd seen movies. We understood or thought we understood that motorcyclists were maybe a source of danger. So when on the last morning I went into the dining room of my motel trying to be calm and open-minded in a room full of leather and chains and tattoos, I was totally surprised when a woman at the next table, an older woman, a biker, an older biker chick, (laughs) came over to me and said, you know, I really enjoy Ms. Magazine, she said. (laughs) I sort of couldn't believe I was hearing this. And that she said her husband also read it sometimes now that he was retired. And it turned out she had recognized Alice Walker, who I was traveling with, which also I never would have imagined. But what you're speaking of is that she looked out the window and pointed me towards a purple Harley very proudly because late in her married life, she had finally been able to travel on her own motorcycle as opposed to on the back of her husband's motorcycle. And that was her purple Harley. She was very proud of it. And she said, oh, you should see my grandkids when Grandma rides up on her purple Harley. (laughs) It made me, after she left, I thought, you know, 
we all have inside of us a purple Harley, a kind of freedom. Yeah. And we have only to find it and ride. You're Gloria Steinem. I am. The new movie about Gloria Steinem's life is called The Glorious. Gloria shares more tips for enjoying your travels. It's in an extra you can hear from the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. David McCullough tells us how his travels have helped set the scene for his epic bestsellers. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. For the last 15 years, our mission on Travel with Rick Steves has been to stoke your travel dreams and to share inspiring stories from every corner of our globe. While the world grapples with the pandemic of coronavirus, we understand that trips are temporarily off the table for many of us. But we'll get through this, and we'll keep on traveling when this crisis becomes old news. Until then, let's use this time to stoke those travel dreams as we enjoy hearing from our friends and experts about their adventures. If this crisis teaches us anything, it's that we're all in this together, and it's important to get to know our neighbors. He's become one of America's most respected and popular historians thanks to the vivid portraits he's created in his bestsellers on Presidents John Adams, Harry Truman, and Theodore Roosevelt. And he's also explored topics like building the Panama Canal and the Brooklyn Bridge and the devastation of the Johnstown Flood. David McCullough's book detailing the genius of the Wright brothers was a bestseller the week it was released. He's put in a lot of miles researching the stories and people he recreates for us on the written page. David McCullough joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of his favorite destinations where you, too, can get a feel for the important places and people in the history of the United States. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You know, this is a travel show, and uh, most of us travel for recreation and to experience our world. I imagine you travel a lot for your work. How do you enjoy traveling? And has travel itself ever sparked an idea for a book of yours? Well, I've loved traveling ever since I was a child. Uh, not that I went very far, but the, the few trips I did take just changed my life. I was thrilled by them. I went to uh, Monticello, for example, as a young high school student, and I went to Williamsburg and Gettysburg, and I have no doubt whatsoever that those experiences increased my love of history, my curiosity about history, because somehow when you're at the place where something really happened, it's not just some dry textbook rendition of something you have to know for a test. And you get a feeling of the human beings that were there. What always strikes me is that everything is bigger than I expected. The battlefields at Gettysburg were much bigger than I ever imagined. The same happened when I went to the Argonne, where Harry Truman fought in the battle during World War I. I couldn't believe how big it was. Kitty Hawk, where the Wrights first flew their plane, the sweep of the, mm -hmm. uh, the outer banks of North Carolina, the scale of it all. You have to have a sense, and of course, anybody who travels through the West, wherever the Oregon Trail went or wherever some of these people had to cross great spaces, the scale of, the, of our country. But there's an art of travel, because you can travel and not be impacted. Yes. Or you could travel and be impacted. Yes, and I think one of the things you have to do is talk to people when you get there and talk to all kinds of people. That's the mark of a good traveler, how you connect Absolutely. with people. Absolutely. Talk to people and, and be patient and don't be in a hurry all the time. Sometimes you feel you have to see everything. Very often it's just better to sit down in a nice cafe or start chatting with someone 
on a park bench along the river or whatever, and you suddenly hear things, learn things that you never would have known otherwise. Now, you're on a book tour now going all over the yes. United States, and I imagine you've met a lot of people. And when I'm on a, a book tour uh, around the country, it has me thinking a lot of things about America. As you travel around our country today, do you find yourself pondering observations? Uh, what makes you optimistic? What, what troubles you as you're on the road? Well, that's a very good question. I would say one of the things that troubles me is the obvious epidemic of obesity that you see everywhere, all ages. And it's sad and it's worrisome, and we've got to figure out what's causing it. I'm also sometimes appalled by the traffic jams at rush hour in every city where you're caught in traffic that can have you sitting doing getting nowhere for an hour or more. But that aside... Every time I go out on a tour or give a lecture somewhere, I always come back reassured that we are a good country. We are a good people. And great things are being accomplished. It isn't all bad news. It isn't all a sign of decadence or indifference to the virtues and values and privileges of being an American. And it never fails. There's something going on in every one of our cities that you can take heart from. And when you talk to people on the road, yes, you're more aware yes. of that. And you say to someone, what's happening here? And they say, oh, let me tell you. And they're proud of it, and they should be. So you got it. And you people. haven't read about it. You haven't heard about it. You don't know about it. Because the, the bad news is what makes news. Good news is seldom reported. Really, unfortunately yes. true. And uh, we may be famously uh, lousy with foreign languages, but one thing we are good at is striking up a conversation. Yes. And we need to use that skill when we're on the road, especially And how much parents countries. care about their children? and grandchildren, and how much they want to be sure that they get the most out of their education, that they get the most out of their first jobs, that they have confidence, that they have trust in the system, but that they have to participate. Mm -hmm. I think traveling makes one a better patriot. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you've known it as long as I have, when you travel abroad, the country that you learn the most about is your own. That is so clear to me. I see our country in higher definition from a distance. The yes. problems and the beauties. Yes. I have a granddaughter who just came back not long ago from a trip to Thailand and Vietnam. And when she got back, we had a chance to chat. She just had graduated from college. And I said, there's this old saying, that what country you learn about most when you travel abroad is your own. Did you come back with a new feeling about any aspect of our country that you never felt before you went to those different countries? She said, oh, yes. I said, what? that we have clean water. Well, that's a huge thing. Isn't that wonderful? And we take it for granted. We take it for and granted. And we shouldn't take it for granted. We have trees. We have a public library system. No country in the world has anything like our public library system. Free to everybody. Two Pulitzer Prizes are among the awards on David McCullough's shelf. And even the government of France has made him an officer in the Legion of Honor. David McCullough's books illuminate the lives of influential people and events in American history and have never gone out of print. His most recent volumes are on the Wright Brothers and about the pioneers who settled Marietta, Ohio, and the old Northwest Territory. His website is davidmccullough.com. You know, when we're traveling, architecture, you know, is a big deal. We see a lot of impressive buildings. It's a big part of our travel. And I understand that when people ask you who is the most influential of all of your writing teachers, you credit... He wasn't a writing teacher. He wasn't a writing teacher. teacher at all. No, it was Vincent Scully, who was a very famous historian of art and architecture at Yale University and one of the 
the most brilliant lecture I've ever heard. And he made me see, he helped me see, in a, and he did this for thousands of others in a way I'd never seen before. He made me want to go to Italy and Florence and Paris and England, all these places to see the great works of architecture and art. And Greece, oh my goodness, his lectures on Greece were phenomenal. So did he inspire you, David, to want to go out and see? Or did, yes. he, did he teach you how to see? Both. What did he teach I you remember about we were stepping out of a, a section of the university one evening after a dinner. Uh-huh. It was springtime. The sun was still hitting the tops of the towers of the campus. And he looked up at the Strathcona, this building, the tower. And he said, look at that building right now in the light that's hitting it. He said, architects don't build with stone and steel and glass. They build with light. And I thought, whoa, whoa. And I still feel that they do. They build with light. We looked out of our hotel window today in downtown Seattle. And the light across, the I guess it was across the, the sound, oh, breathtaking and sharp. Now, you write so prolifically, but I I have a sense that you have to read in order to fuel your writing spirit. Do you deliberately prioritize reading? How do you make time in your busy life to keep reading and and keep vital? Well, in the midst of a project, when I'm working on a book, it's everything I can do to do all the reading that's necessary in order to write the book. But when the book is finished, then I have a chance to lapse into things that I want to read myself. Right. And I love fiction, great fiction. I love the classics. I love Anthony Trollope. I think he's addictive. I like, loved Ruth Rendell. I still do. She just died recently, the wonderful detective writer, but who was really a brilliant novelist. But I love Willa Cather and, and Edith Wharton, and I I love... Um, so you make time to read in that? Yes, that and, but, and I also read some history and biography, of course, and travel books. I'm very eclectic, and I sometimes go back and read something I've read before, mm-hmm. find that I like it even more than I did then. Sometimes I find this isn't as good as I thought it was. And I like to read good writers. I don't like to read... I, I like to read up. I like to read over my head, if anything, rather than down. He's even had a bridge in his hometown of Pittsburgh named after him. We're revisiting the time David McCullough came to our studio at Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how important his travels have been in illuminating the places and events of American history and in showing him what truly makes America great. David's books include 1776, John Adams, The American Spirit, and The Wright Brothers. A visit to Ohio University inspired him to learn about the early settlers of the old Northwest Territory. That's the topic of his most recent book called The Pioneers. David, one book I particularly related to of yours is The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. And in it, you made the point that not all pioneers went west. What did you mean by that? Well, they went east to the old country. And, of course, the old country is, for most of us, where we came from. And if you want to understand American history, you have to understand European history. You have to understand the English and the Scotch and the Irish and the Italians. And you have to understand why they wanted to come here and what they brought with them and what aspirations they brought with them that were not possible to achieve back home. So these were pioneers in, in a cultural sense, yes, going to the old They're going to the old country t- uh-huh. to get training and enlargement of outlook and mind. 
I get this sense that you have a particular um, appreciation or fascination in bridges. You wrote a book about the Brooklyn yes. Bridge. Uh, yes. You love the bridges of Paris. Yes. What is it about bridges? I suppose in part it's because I grew up with them. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which has more bridges even than Paris. And they're all different, and they're all, to me, spectacular. And I always say, how in the world did they do that? Sailing under those bridges on the, in the Seine River is such yes. a delight. With yes. the different pride of different ages, decorating each well, When you come into Pittsburgh now, yeah. you come through a tunnel, and all of a sudden, whoa, you come out of the tunnel, and there it is, where the Monongahela meets the Allegheny to form the Ohio. And all these bridges are conferring. And you think this is a center of, of action. And it, of course, is, has been for a long yeah. time. But I dearly love buildings. And particularly, I'm crazy about Gothic architecture. I just think it's breathtaking and inspiring. There's something... What of, is it? What is it about Gothic architecture? It's reaching upward. Yeah. And it's using light. It's filled with light. It's That's used, what it is. Yes, in the light of those magnificent windows. It's, and it's sculpted. Yeah. And it's stone to last. And... Oh, heavens, my goodness. Well, the, those first Americans you talked about in The Greater Journey, their yeah. first stop was Rouen, and yeah. it was a cathedral that they yeah. saw. Yeah. Who was it that said, if this is all I saw, it was worth yeah. going Yeah, James Fenimore Cooper. Going across the Atlantic. Yeah, and they just been through a terrible voyage across the ocean. Now, you talk about all the energy around um, bridges. I'm fascinated about the wrong side of the track, which in Europe would be the wrong side of the river. Yes. Isn't it interesting how trains brought the, the yes. economy into American towns as we were growing? But in Europe, I think the equivalent is rivers. Yeah. And think about all the wrong sides of the rivers in Europe. Yes. You got in Rome, Trastevere. Right. Yeah. In Paris, the Left yep. Bank, in London, yep. and in Florence, Alter. Well, rivers, river cities are story cities, always. That's it, isn't it? Yes. Whether it's Paris or uh, St. Louis or Pittsburgh or New Orleans, uh, they're story cities because people are coming and going, coming and going. But the American road whether that road is the river or the trail or the railroad, the American road is a very big part of the story of, of our country. And if you're going west to new opportunity or you're someone, an African-American, coming north for freedom, it's all this journey, the road. And if you stay home, you don't get ever drive on the road. you got to get out there and see <laughs> yes, the world. Yes, you do. You know, you've written books for 50 years now. Looking back... Do you see an overarching theme in your books? Yes, people who set out to accomplish something worthy and don't give up when the, with setbacks and defeats along the way and achieve that objective through ingenuity and courage and purpose, high purpose. You seem to live your life with high purpose, and you've had enough success where you could say, that's good, but you keep writing. It's a lot of work. What motivates you? I love the work. Yeah. The joy is in the work. It is, isn't it? Yeah, the joy is... Yes, it's wonderful to have a book succeed. It's wonderful to have people stop you in the street and thank you for the book. But the real joy is in the work. You know, I have a feeling that education in our country these days is more and more geared towards training workers instead of thinkers. What are yes. your thoughts on that? Well, one of, the, one of the points of my Wright Brothers book, though I don't belabor it, I don't sermonize about it, mm -hmm. is here are these two men who broke through one of the greatest puzzles of all time, a technical achievement without precedent, who had a full liberal arts education at home. And today there's this tendency to encourage people who want to go into high-tech right. work 
to skirt the liberal arts is disposable. Yeah, yeah, avoid it if you can. It's 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 superfluous. You don't need it. Where in fact, we all need it. You know, many many years ago, I got a history degree, and then I thought, well, I better get something practical, so I got a business degree too. Yes. Now, when I look back on it, it's clear to me my history degree has been at least as practical and valuable to me as my business degree. I'm sure it has. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's history, a tragedy. History when teaches you about cause and effect. It teaches you about the importance of leadership. It teaches you that almost nothing of consequence is ever accomplished alone. It's a joint effort. And it's a great antidote to the hubris of the present. We think we're so nifty. We think we're so accomplished. We think we're so cool. And when you go back and see what... I remember one time standing in front of Botticelli's Birth of Venus in the Uffizi Gallery and thinking, oh, good heavens, one man did that way back then? It's so humbling and inspiring. Oh, it was... It was one of the most breathtaking moments of my life. So that is a pretty exciting mission, and I have a feeling that's the mission you're on. Well, I hope so. To fight historical illiteracy. I want people, I want my fellow citizens to know the story of their country. I want to bring that history alive in a way that will give us a greater sense of who we are, how we got to be where we are, how hard those who went before us worked to give us the advantages and the privileges that we must, must, must not ever take for granted. David McCullough, you are doing that magnificently for for millions of people. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Keep on writing. I always say keep on traveling. Keep on writing. (laughs) Well, the the traveling goes with it. That's a given. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can share your passion with us for finding just the right words to describe your travel impressions in the form of a haiku poem. It can be about exotic places you've visited or just the feeling you get from something close to home. There's a place for you to submit your original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. From time to time on the show, we select a few of our favorites to share with you, like these. Bill Nolan of Seattle wrote this poem at a roadside rest in Kansas while on a motorcycle road trip to Indianapolis. It refers to a good luck ritual he had, kissing his orange tabby cat on the head as the last thing he'd do before departing on a trip. On my black jacket, 1,800 miles from home, one orange cat hair. Steve and Luann Flowers wrote this haiku after their family took a float trip down the Illinois River in Oklahoma. The river flows on, kids laughing, sun shining, till, oops, the canoe flips. And Kathy Kreider from Miami writes us this rather personal haiku. Ten days on a ship with my partner of two years. We made it to three. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tanton and Kaz Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kitnikone, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Rachel Unk for reading our listener travel haiku and to Sarah McCormick for editing help this week. Gloria Steinem shares tips for travel comfort, and Dave Samanara has more about the narco-tourism of Medellin. You can hear that from the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Join us for Haunted Halloween Travels next week on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. 
It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.